Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Decrypt. My name is Nick Rice, and I will be your host today as we welcome back Steve Sachs, a senior consultant in our cybersecurity practice. Hey, Steve, good morning. How are you doing? Hey, Nick, I'm great. Thanks. It's great to have you back on the podcast. And for the first time, and definitely not the last time, we've got Dan Heal with us. Dan is the global head of our sports practice. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks very much for having me. Guys, it's fantastic to have you on because today we're going to be discussing what's going on with cybersecurity in the sports industry. And more specifically, we have now gone out of the FIFA World Cup in 2022. We are entering a massive sporting calendar in the US and we've seen more and more of these events being targeted or discussed by cyber threat actors in terms of both disruptive operations and also reputational damages to the companies and the sporting teams are uh, partaking in in each of these events. The really interesting thing and one of the key things that we're going to discuss today is the increasing connectivity of the sports industry as a whole, whether we're thinking about modern stadiums within smart cities that use digital connectivity in order to facilitate the arrival of spectators, the live streaming of events. But if we are also thinking about the online footprint and presence that a lot of these sports players have now gained and how threat actors are exploiting this type of presence in order to commit both physical and cyber attacks against them, it's really a challenging time for the sporting industry as a whole. And Steve, maybe if I can open up with you, you know, you've been in the, in the cyber industry for a long time now, and you've seen both executives and organizations deal with these kind of issues. What's your take on the kind of threats and risks that we're seeing really hitting the sports world today? One of the things I want to hit on, Nick, that you mentioned is this expanding online presence and almost persona for not just individual players or coaching staff or other support individuals, but also teams themselves. Venues now have an online presence, whether that be a Twitter handle, an Instagram account, they're on TikTok. And that creates its own version of kind of reputational vulnerability. So I think some of the ones that are most front of mind is when Twitter moved off the blue checkmark model and we saw companies' Twitter accounts not necessarily get hacked, but become impersonated. And that had direct contributions to stock prices. You know, that was, that was a huge deal. We see individuals can become victims of that as well. I think, uh, just this week, the U.S. ambassador at large for cybersecurity, Nathaniel Fick, had his Twitter account hacked. Right. Not exactly, you know, a, a proud moment for cybersecurity in the United States, but I think it, it very much reveals the world in which we live in today from a, a cyber threat perspective. And we talked last time about the kind of uh, availability of cyber attack tools to an ever increasing population of the world. And now that can be turned against players, against teams, against venues. And so. The increasing need for threat monitoring in that space for these individuals and organizations becomes ever more important. It's an interesting point. And, and before I, I jump on to Dan, I think one of the things to look forward to is and, and whether or not we, we think it's going to be what, what it claims to be as the metaverse and how some of these sporting organizations are already looking to establish this purely digital presence and, and looking at the potential vulnerability vulnerabilities there. But Dan, 
what Steve's describing here, this sort of new world in which managing one's online reputation and and the possibility of of having it hijacked, hacked, or and at times even uh, disinformation's played a key role in this space. That's nothing new, right, for the sports industry. I mean, the reputation of these teams, the brands of the industry, the brands of specific player has always been paramount. Have you seen in the conversations that you're having with 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 stakeholders across the sports world uh, that awareness and that concern grow over the past few years? D- definitely, Nick. And I, and I think Steve's uh, totally right in, in outlining those, those sort of key areas. But I think that the key change, perhaps in the last two, three, five years, n- not necessarily COVID pandemic linked, but definitely an impact uh, on that is around that very survivability of some sports uh, that have had uh, two or three years of real financial impact against a very, very survivability, really, I- I- in the world. And, and linked to that, sort of some of the uh, other major, let's take the, the, the US leagues, for instance, or some of the leagues in the US looking at international expansion. So not only has the, the dynamics changed domestically around COVID or traditional risk versus emerging risk, but actually a lot of sports organizations, a lot of sports bodies are having to go into, into new markets, uh, having to go into areas perhaps they're less familiar with. Combine that with the with a digitalization of of all things sports. Um, maybe I'm sure we'll come back onto onto that, those areas shortly. But not only have you got a changing dynamic, um, you've got a changing world that we as sport lovers or, or the sports organisations themselves are trying to 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 thrive in compared to two, three, or five years ago. I, and that that digitalization is a really interesting point because I think the the, the pandemic certainly had an effect and and much like the rest of the world, the sports industry had to reinvent itself. And I, I remember when we saw the first sort of uh, holograms being being shown for or, or CGI, essentially um, audiences for, for some of these sporting events, that, that has really triggered change in the industry. But when we look at the trajectory of where, where the sports world is going, you are seeing that increasing at the infrastructure level itself, digitalization. I mean, Dan, you and I talked a couple of years back about disruptive attacks that could turn off turnstiles when when individual spectators are coming into a stadium. Steve, what, what are the parallels that you see between these types of concerns and what we deal with with other clients in the critical infrastructure space? Or is this something that's being echoed in this sort of the physical infrastructure that we rely on is at risk and therefore should sporting organizations really be thinking about what's coming next in that space. Absolutely. And I think one of the analogies to draw on here is specifically or especially in the United States, we've seen cyber threat actors start to target what's called operational technology, meaning kind of not your computers and your you know, routers or firewalls or some of that information technology, but the operational technology where there is a, a mechanical mechanism that is connected but has a, a physical aspect to it. And here in the sporting arena, you have turnstiles as a great example of they are connected now because of that digitalization of the sporting world where to track attendees, turnstiles are probably the easiest mechanism by which to track how many people are entering the venue. But what happens when a nefarious actor gets access to that? They can shut those down at will and potentially worse things. And when you look at other different mechanisms across 
you know, venues, if they're indoor, there's air circulation, right? Air circulation is a, is a critical piece of operational technology that is connected to some sort of central dashboard that's managed by venue personnel. And you can just remember the target breach, which dates back now a long time ago, but through an HVAC system, uh, way back in yes. the day. And so you see those, those, that, that digitalization increasingly potentially, and I'm going to be provocative here, Steve. Are we looking at potential threats to life to spectators if, if a system was to be hijacked and disruptive in, in a way that we're describing here? In July of 2021, Gartner put out a report that said that by 2035, I'm really hoping I got that year right, you're going to see cyber threat actors targeting operational technology directly to threat life. And that it will be the, you know, kind of intent of the act from the start. And right. Whether the, the impetus behind that is financial gain, because, you know, the larger the, the impact of the threat, the higher the likelihood of a payout by the target, or just to cause chaos and damage reputationally, financially to a target. When you incorporate health and safety into kind of the, the effects of a cyber attack, the stakes get much, much higher very, very quickly. And I think, Nick, can I jump in on a point? Yeah, go ahead, yeah. So, so I think that that's really fascinating. And, and one area I want to come back to is around the commercialization of, the, of, of that data, of that digitalization. We, we've used a lot of isations there, but it's, uh, I think that's really important. But to, to Steve's, point, Steve's point about the threat actors and, and, and the what ifs, but if you look at a major sports event, let's take a Super Bowl, Let's take a FIFA World Cup and Olympic Games. If you look at the, the 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 threat actor that's wanting not necessarily financial gain, but uh, from a geopolitical risk perspective, that's looking to 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 drive their their message forward. I mean, what bigger stage than having a couple of hundred million or billion people watching a, a major sports event? And, and, and it's that politicization that, and this is another ION ending, but that that politicization that. I think is is really fascinating. And there was a lot of discussion uh, in the FIFA World Cup this year around sort of the geopolitics of, of sports and, and how that plays into the decision of, of engaging with, with a particular competition. Um, but, you know, it's nothing new. I mean, cast your mind back to the World Cup in Argentina, the, the, the Olympic Games in, in, in Berlin. That political stage has always been there. I, I suppose one of the things that is rapidly changing to your point, Steve, early on about the barriers to entry to launch these attacks as they, they seem to be thinning down, what we're opening here is is the real risk of, of physical security issues stemming from a cyber attack against the infrastructure supporting a competition. Is that something, Dan, that in the conversations you're having with both the organizing bodies and individual teams you're starting to hear about? Or is that something that's still being pushed as, look, we're talking about a bit of science fiction here. We're nowhere near that. We've got much more pressing concern about preventing drunk people from entering a stadium. I really think it is, Nick, and around that ownership and I think the integration of 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 risk management rather than sort of seeing cyber as an IT issue and seeing physical security over here and integrity risk around match fixing or match manipulation, driving the message home and uh, around integration of those risks that actually 
that one does lead to the other, which does lead to the other. Those sports bodies, those organizations, those major events that are that are understanding that, that are appreciating that and, and trying to deal with it are, the, are those ones that will be that will be sort of most successful going forward. But so yeah, it's it's a real whether it's top of top of the list for a lot of sports bodies, um, I'm still not convinced. But again, it's it's it, what's the next thing around the corner? What's gonna potentially impact the the FIFA Women's World Cup in the, in Australia, New Zealand this uh, this this uh, July and August? What's gonna be impact the Super Bowl. Actually, if you sit back and look around that integration of risk and how things could sit together, it certainly is rising up the, the, the area of concern. If you have any questions about any topics regarding cybersecurity or technology issues, please feel free to email us and our experts will get back to you at cyber at controlrisks.com. You've mentioned something interesting here around fixing, and there's a whole side industry to the sports industry, which is both the betting and, and the broader uh, gaming industry. And, and we can't forget, and this would be a shame on a cyber podcast to forget to talk about esports. And we will come back to this because I think one of the disruptive angle that we're seeing increasingly, and I cast my mind back to to uh, North Korean operations and Russian operations in the past. I have hit competitions uh, uh, live streams as they were going ahead. We do have an entire component of the industry that is now fully online. Um, one of the big components to this is the betting industry. And, and Steve, I'd be interested in your take and sort of as you've seen the landscape evolve, you know, Dan flagged that this is a, a critical partner in in the sports world what what has been your your visibility over and your assessment of of what's happening in the parallel world where data and integrity of data becomes really critical to these sporting organizations as well i think the first piece i'd touch on is again when you see threat actors looking for things that they can extort maximum amounts of money from a target for the betting world is a very, very large target because not only does it have data and transactional history and account history for individuals using the platforms, but there's also a lot of capital that flows through those organizations. And so holding that currency, that capital, those individuals data hostage can be a very lucrative target for financially motivated threat actors. The other piece I would touch on is the expansion of data privacy regulation. It's, it's a different type of risk, right? It's not a cyber threat actor looking to cause damage, but it is a risk that companies have to deal with. And the, the betting world is no different. Esports is no different where you have increasingly complex and overlapping policies and regulations at the international, the, the regional, the national, the state level that says companies that hold personally identifiable information or sensitive personal information must hold that data in this way, in this place. And if that data needs to move from one region to another, it has to meet this criteria. It has to be stored in this capable level of, of system. And that brings more requirements for organizations to almost have that internal auditing process to make sure that they're continually in compliance, not just with the regulations that are in existence now, but those that are coming forward over this next one to five years. You're, you're bringing something interesting here, Stephen. And Dan, I'd love to hear what you think about this. But we talked about in RiskMap, uh, you know, we, we're, we're still finishing some of the sessions. But over the past three months, we've talked a lot about fragmentation. Uh, the challenges that the private sector will have to continue to operate globally 
as states and regulators are increasingly considering sovereignty as a critical um, component of allowing businesses to operate. Are you hearing the same thing in the sports world then? Have you already had conversations with people saying, well, data localization makes it really difficult for us to host a competition in this part of the world? Or is that still something that's that's in its infancy in the industry? I, I think it's still in its uh, infancy, Nick, to be honest. It's 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 something that's being identified and looked at. Um, but again, if if you if you look sort of from a from a cyclical sports event, sort of annual or, or a league, whether that be the MLS, the English Premier League, the NBA, whatever it may be, I mean that there's there's sort of there's more localized domestic issues. When you're looking at an Olympic Games or a FIFA World Cup, I mean these these are 10, 12 years out. Uh, and trying for trying to advise and being that trusted advisor to to a major sports federation around hey what's what could impact uh, Brisbane Olympics uh, let alone Paris 24 just around the corner uh, what's going on what's who's going to be awarded uh, the 34 38 Olympics where's FIFA World Cups going it's uh, it's fascinating to, to to sit back and say right this is this is sort of what you as a sports body or you as a as a rights holder is looking at uh, and certainly from that that data perspective or that link or barrier between international, uh, national, local uh, is fascinating, but it's it's something that is going to really impact. Um, I think both, uh, as I said, that the less so the the annual cyclical events, um, more so those forward-looking. Hey, we're going to award in ten for an event in ten or twelve years' time. It's it's almost uh, the one thing that we're having a lot of conversations with clients in cyber across the board is the scenario planning. And, you know, you need to look five years ahead because right now the, the technical developments in the industry, what we call emerging technology, won't be emerging in five years. It's going to be what we all use. So it's almost like the rest of the corporate world can learn from the the sporting industry who have to look at that time horizon. Uh, Steve, I know this is this is your bread and butter, that sort of what's going to happen in 2034. We're not going to quote you on what, what are going to be the main risks of the sports industry in that space. But when you think about the emerging technology landscape that, that we've been talking about repeatedly, whether that's AI, quantum, I mean, we're going to do a whole episode on ChatGPT and how that's being used for, for cyber attacks. But what what are these critical technologies that the sports industry will be onboarding? We mentioned the metaverse. Is there is there things that you see on the horizon that you would say to a, a large organizational body um, planning to, to set up a, an event in five years? You need to pay attention to this because this is going to be the big risk. It's going to come in the world of automation and whether that automation is driven by some sort of generalized artificial intelligence or, you know, a well trained machine learning algorithm. Automation is where organizations will go to gain efficiencies across, you know, their various areas of responsibility with automation comes a whole new world of risk. And, you know, one of the ones that's often talked about specifically in the machine learning world is that, you know, a machine learning algorithm is only as good as the data sets on which it's trained. The world of sports has immense data sets on which to train machine learning algorithms, which is fantastic. I think it's a great ecosystem within which to kind of experiment with this you know, new horizon of technology. But one of the risks that brings with it is if, if threat actors are able to corrupt the integrity of the data. And what I mean is 
there is an assumption when you're training machine learning algorithms that the data you're feeding it is good, it is accurate, it is realistic, and it reflects the reality upon which these organizations are operating. If there are individuals or groups that have the ability to manipulate the data so that it reflects an alternative reality, you know, a, a degraded truth, if you will, that then has cascading effects in the algorithm, in the automation processes, and can have very detrimental effects to organizations who are looking to employ this automation to gain those efficiencies. They may gain the wrong efficiencies, right? They may often, in fact, degrade their efficiency over time because the, the data was not what they thought they were going to be training their systems on. It's Moneyball. Um, and I'm, I'm just remembering, imagine if you'd fed the wrong information to, to that process. I mean, this doesn't only have implications from, from the commercial side of the sporting industry. It's also in player recruitment, in talent development. You know, the amount of investments that these companies have made, and, and Dan, I'm sure you're, you're, you're talking about this constantly, in you know, tell me what that player's statistics are and how can we create the perfect mix-up of, of talent within our teams. That's going to automate. It's already halfway there. So what happens if if the data that's used as an input is modified or if the algorithm itself is modified? Dan, is that something that, that you're seeing in the industry where people are, are sort of looking at technology as a massive competitive advantage within the sports world? Hugely. I think, Steve, I started to sweat a little bit when you were talking at, towards the end there. But yeah, n n Nick, Nick, 100%. And it's it's fascinating to, to see both different sports and different uh, markets. Um, and it's not necessarily your biggest league, your biggest sport, your most wealthy club or franchise or team. It's sometimes, and um, I'm, uh, I, I live in the UK in a town called Brighton on the South Coast, and our soccer team, our football team is is, is one of the leaders in this. We're, we're not the, the biggest, best funded clubs, but actually the 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 the, the technology that's used around player recruitment around player performance and attracting talent to see right actually i want to that 21 year old that's playing in the j league um that we can bring over for two million dollars and in five years time sell for 50 million dollars that's business that that's amazing business uh, and he or she the player coming through is is given enough to that club to then go on and step on so that, that those sports those markets those teams and franchises that are seeing technology as a competitive advantage are the ones that are, that, that are proving successful and those that aren't are, again looking forward five or ten years from a resiliency and survivability perspective the ones that will, will continue to struggle and Steve, I mean, I cut you off to, to make a, a Brad Pitt reference, but uh, which I think is only fair. Um, but but I think you were you were describing the this sort of automation component of everything that we do, and it goes back to the infrastructure point, right? Um, it, it's AI is obviously more than just automation, but one of the great benefits is is the increased efficiency and rapidity of being able to to calculate and to to forecast what will work and what won't work in essence and oftentimes to learn also what what might work when you think about the next 10 to 15 years as a sporting organization beyond the application of ai do you see any other major risks and challenges be that from a threat perspective or from an actual technology vulnerability perspective 
So I'll, I'll also be a little bit provocative as well. Although, uh, I know Charles has talked about this on, on his podcast as well is the implication of central bank digital currencies to global sporting events. And, And Dan, you talked about the globalization of, you know, formerly regional leagues and sports. So for example, the NFL playing games in Europe more prolifically now every year. When we look at the advent of central bank digital currencies, and again, just you know, the very top level explainer of think a, a digital currency that is backed by a national financial institution. One of the challenges there is infrastructure. How do you accept that currency in a safe, secure, and acceptable manner to consumers? But more so, and Charles did a great job on his podcast of teasing this out, is the fact that these central bank digital currencies are currently being developed disparately, meaning that every country is creating their own standards upon which they're going to build out this capability, standardize the capability, and then implement the capability within their purview. And so what we potentially will see is if central bank digital currencies catch on, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's a guarantee, but if that's the direction the world chooses to go, we are very quickly going to run into again, this, this fractionalization of markets that will very quickly have to be overcome with exchanges, right? And where that becomes an increasing risk is going back to this digital currency concept where you look at cryptocurrency and you see where in the cryptocurrency world is one of the most highly targeted aspects of that transactional ecosystem. It's the exchanges. It's when you try to exchange one digital, one cryptocurrency for another. And in that exchange, you find cyber attackers trying to target and drain those funds from both sender and receiver. So I think that's something that, again, more on the provocative side, I'm not saying central bank digital currencies are the way of the future, but it's something that we need to start thinking about now because we are developing these capabilities today. And if we don't build them for global resilience and interoperability, we're going to quickly run into these walls and hurdles that will affect the global sporting world. And, you know, I, we're going to do another podcast on, on digital currencies, because I think if you pick three or 10 members of our team, everyone has a different point of view on what's going to happen with this. But one of the things that this highlights to me is you know, Dan, to your point earlier about the fact that a lot of these these large sporting events are, are major cycles where, you know, 10 years from now, once something has been agreed, it's unlikely that'll be reversed. There may be some major changes that, that need to be made because of geopolitics. But if a new regulation comes up, usually the events still continue to go on. And it would be very difficult if that wasn't the case. Now, one of the world where we're the cycle is much, much, much shorter is the world of esports. And I think that that touches partly on what you're describing here, Steve, about the real challenge of global operability for any organization in the future in the currency space. But we've talked about this in the digital space as well. You Can you use the same technology stacks? Can you use these other things that are running? Dan, you've had a lot of experience working with esports organizations and supporting their event management, their risk management processes. What have you seen in terms of concerns that esports companies or organizers have that may be different from the world of the physical sport? 
So, Nick, I think it's it's probably worth mentioning here around within esports that the traditional sports uh, that are uh, that are in this sphere, as well as the, uh, the 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 right game sort of League of Legends types as well, because I think there there is a there is a difference, and I think it's going to be fascinating in in twenty or twenty thirty years time, the next generation to see actually is football American football is rugby. What 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 do those physical contact sports look like um playing on a at 9am on a sunday morning in minus two degrees with with um horizontal rain coming in compared to actually i can just put something on in my front room favorite thing to do on a sunday exactly nick um i think it's really fascinating to see how that's going to change from a technology perspective and, and 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 metaverse linked to that as well but and then on on on, the, on those esports that are involved in that competitive nature now, um, I mentioned League of Legends or, or, or whatever the game may be. But if you if you accelerate the risk profile in a traditional sport compared to a online sport, I mean where it goes from potentially days, months planning around a uh, fixing a match or, or, or match manipulation compared to an online uh, issue um, related to, I mean, it's it's 0.01 seconds that so if, if, if that player, he or she doesn't press that button, I'm, I'm oversimplifying things, but it's sort of 0.1 seconds compared to, wow, that's that, that person actually, he or she has to be targeted uh, in, in a particular, from a player performance perspective. So it's fascinating to see that there's a lot of similarities between traditional uh, and emerging esports from a risk management perspective, but there's some real nuances that uh, that are there in, in, in the world of esports and 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 for those that don't believe in esports as a true sport, I, I must I must say it took me a while to to, to come round, but a hundred percent it's it, it is the future. Um, as a traditional sports lover, it did it did take me a while to 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 believe and accept that, but it is the future. And how that how that changes the risk profile, as I said, in 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 five ten years time, is going to be fascinating to see. But it's it's a real area of concern. It could be. Anything, as I said, from from match fixing to spot fixing to to doping, uh, that that's that's a huge area of, of concern to for esports publishers and uh, and those involved in the organization organizing organizing tournaments. It's, this is going to be the podcast where we have the boldest predictions. Esports is a big thing, and digital currencies are going to be big. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will 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 turn around in, in their chair. But guys, one of the things that we haven't spoken about here is is and I want to get to the part of the podcast that's that's both the most interesting and oftentimes where I put you guys on the spot way more, which is, okay, all of this is great. So what what should a sport organization do? What should non-sporting organizations do when they think about the world that, that's coming ahead? But before we jump into this, you mentioned doping, Dan. I mean, doping to go back to the point around integrity that Steve was flagging, the responsibility that WADA or other anti-doping organizations have is is really about data integrity. Um, is that something that you're hearing when you talk to sports organizations other than, look, we're really worried about the availability of our system, is the point around confidentiality and integrity, you know, we have very sensitive data. Um, is that something that they're conscious of? Is that something that they're thinking about? Or do they do they think, okay, well, you know, bar maybe ongoing player negotiations or or or, or, or trades, it's really not that big a deal. I, I think it's a huge deal and it's considered a huge deal because of that 
for those areas you mentioned, but also probably more so because of that reputational side is that the integrity of that game for, for that av- average fan, whether he or she is based in the world of, of watching that sport or being invested both physically, emotionally and financially in, in, in many situations, it, it's got to be a, a, a top of the top of the list. And, and, and if you lose that, lose that sort of integrity side around player performance um, because of doping, because of a data breach or a leak or whatever it may be, it, it's, it is really a critical part. And I'm now going to move us on to the so what factor, uh, because we need to, to, to kind of think about what organizations should be thinking about. So Steve, you spend your days advising Fortune 100 clients across the Americas and thinking, how do I deal with the growth in cyber and technology risks and what's coming next? Tomorrow, if you had to, and you are now speaking to the sports world as a whole, if you had to to, to really advise them on three things that are is either something they should be doing or something they need to start thinking about, what would that be? So number one is supply chain due diligence. And I think that's because as we've talked about kind of ad nauseum here today is with the expansion, both digitally and physically of various sporting worlds, you have an increasingly interconnected risk profile for organizations, players, teams, and venues, where as teams expand overseas and start playing games um, in different continents, they are going to leverage different partners, whether that be a software as a service, platform as a service, a physical vendor, food vendors, security vendors. How are organizations managing this, this new risk? And I see a lot of analogies to kind of what we talked about in Risk Map Chicago, where what are some of the implications to reshoring? supply chains, physical supply chains for companies. There is a a dramatic analogy for sporting organizations that are expanding digitally with their partners into new areas. So what are the processes by which you vet these new partners? And from a cybersecurity perspective, we talked about data privacy regulations and ensuring that storage of personally identifiable information meets regulatory standards, how are you ensuring that across your cyber supply chain? All the way down to in the esports world, where it's even more critical, where you know all of these partners are not only hosting data, but oftentimes enabling the streaming, right? They're enabling audience participation. And so getting down into the you know very technical weeds of you know newer security frameworks like the supply chain levels for software artifacts is a security framework specifically for ensuring the integrity of software development through the lifecycle. How are organizations vetting and continually vetting these supply chain partners to ensure the holistic security of their data? So that's, that's number one. Number two is something I brought up at the very beginning, which is that online threat monitoring. So as we look at the potential for reputational damage to individuals, organizations, teams, venues, getting that head start on threats because you have a partner in the space like control risks that's out there in the deep and dark web in the publicly available spaces online actively searching for these potentially credible threats and giving organizations a head start on mitigating the damages 
is incredibly valuable in today's world of that expanding threat landscape. That's number two. And then number three is proliferating knowledge of the threat down to the lowest level. And so this is where you have teams, organizations, and venues that may be very cognizant of the attack surface that they're facing right now, but they need to push that understanding down to the players, to the coaches, to the support staff, because everyone needs to be vigilant and take part in the holistic defense of the crown jewels of these organizations. So supply chain vetting and due diligence is number one. Number two, online threat monitoring. And then number three, training, education, and awareness about this ever-evolving threat landscape that we're facing both in the cyber domain as well as the physical domain. Easy to do, I think, all around. But uh, Dan, what? How does that? How do you respond to that? Do you think these are three of the things that that you're hearing from the industry? Is that what they're thinking about, or what are you hearing as their primary concern and challenges right now? I think there's a lot of overlap to to what Steve said. I, I think the online threat piece is probably at the forefront uh, of most sporting bodies' minds, whether that be sort of individual players or owners, um, um, stakeholders, administrators that are involved with that sport being sort of targeted online with that sort of um, uh, from a performance perspective, racial abuse, w- w- whatever it may be. That's that's very much front and centre, I think, for, for for a lot of sports organisations. What so I think that was your point too, Steve. I think. Probably your point one around that supply chain due diligence and looking into that side. That's that's probably not the, the crocodile nearest the canoe, as it were, for, for a lot of sports organisations. But actually, if you if you look at what's what could impact them um, most from a criticality perspective going forward, I mean that's that's without a doubt what it is. And again, back to to that longer cyclical event, an Olympics, a FIFA World Cup, uh, or even a annual events like the like the Super Bowl. I mean that that that's huge. Uh, and knowing what could impact um, the success of that tournament that match that league is is critical steve that that's something that we've talked about with with so many organizations is there value in ensuring and i'm sure this is the case dan and what you're hearing but it sounds like the sports world isn't that different from other sectors that we're dealing with from a cyber perspective where instead of executives you have players and instead of products you have brands that are online and instead of of sort of ot systems for an industrial perspective you have ot systems for your stadiums and ot systems for your ticketing is there value do you think in in ensuring that there is that intelligence sharing and that knowledge sharing between the sports world and and other sectors who may have gone through this or who may be going through it at the same time Absolutely. And I think critical infrastructure, at least as defined by, you know, CISA in the United States, the 16 sectors already have good relationships with law enforcement and even, you know, some members of the intelligence community in that threat information sharing space. And so you have organizations like InfraGuard that operate as the interlocutor between the Federal Bureau of Investigations in the U.S. and critical infrastructure, you know, private sector businesses. We need something like that for sports where, you know, we just talked about the criticality of the information that's involved here is, is equally as high. How are we getting these organizations, the, the top level, most relevant threat information so that they can do what they need to do to best protect themselves? And again, share that knowledge across their organization. 
And so that's where, you know, in, in Nick, you're in my space. It's cyber threat intelligence, getting those assessments out to folks to say, look, you're a sports team that operates out of New York, but plays games across the United States, sometimes goes across the pond to Europe. Here's what a most likely threat actor looks like in your space. And here's how you can best start protecting yourself, right? Teams want that information. You know, they, they're, they're busy managing their entire enterprise, having a partner that's involved in providing that level of information timely and in a way that is directly actionable and ties, you know, directly to decision points for these organizations is a force multiplier, right? It allows them to, again, gain that head start gain that decision space to continue to get that competitive edge in the industry. And I think it's, um, Nick, if I may, I think one of, to, to your point there, Steve, what's what's changed recently is around private equity or investment coming into the world and business of sport, which is professionalizing that governance, that management structures, whatever it may be. And certainly cyber is is a key issue around that. But I think that the days of, of sort of saying, oh, it's uh, a particular association or federation is run by former players players or athletes, yes, there's very, there are a lot uh, of organizations and sports bodies that are still like that, but those most successful ones and those that have attracted uh, private equity or external investment are those ones that are that are driving things forward uh, from a governance, compliance, and, and, and broader risk management perspective. And some of them are even being run by actors, uh, but that's a different story for another time. Um, I think let me let me summarize if I can uh, this conversation because it's been fascinating and it's obviously such a broad topic uh, and it's it's one that we will come back to uh, a shameless plug for Dan's uh, uh, practice where there is a huge amount of material that you can go and find on our controlrisk.com website with a lot of analysis on on the politics and the geopolitics of sport, the security and the integrity of sports, and even some cyber analysis that was produced by in conjunction between somebody from our cyber practice and, and Dan's team. So there's way more to talk about here. But if I can sum up, guys, what we talked about today, what we talked about today was that the sports world faces very similar and if not at times more acute challenges that we are seeing across every sector, which is the management and response to online reputational or security threats and risks. It is the interconnectivity of both the physical assets on which we rely, but also the supply chains and the partners with whom we work and the investment that has been made over the past decade and that is rapidly accelerating into emerging technologies is posing an increasing risk and challenge and forces organization to think about not what's happening today, but what is going to happen in these five to 10 years. One of the things that the rest of the world can learn from the sports world is how do we deal with these very long cycles? Because I think then that point to me struck the best chord in saying, look, they have been doing this since their inception. It is very few industries that can say our time horizon is 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And we have to contend with both geopolitics of the highest level and nowadays some of the best technology and technological investments in the world. So. Guys, I want to say a huge thank you for being on the podcast today. We are going to continue this conversation and there will be way more. But for now, we'll pause it here. And it was really great to have you on. Thanks so much, Nick. It was great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Steve. 
have a whole host of episodes coming soon to Decrypt, covering the most crucial topics, breaking news, and strategic horizon scanning within the world of cyber that you need to be aware of. With analysis and discussion from our experts located around the world, subscribe to Control Risks Decrypt as we help you make sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting your business. For more information on how we can help you build a resilient, compliant, and secure organization realizing the benefits of technology, visit us at www.controlrisks.com. And remember, our experts are only ever one email away. Email us at cyber at 